0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both christian and muslim palestinians for over 60 years of occupation our study leader is mark horton president of ultra clean corporation and a diligent student of the bible our reader is we hold these truths faithful volunteer and dramatist leslie fort thanks for joining in our quest In today's Christ Follower's Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 19. We'll be starting at verse 23, and as we like to do, we'll open with a word of prayer. William, would you please lead us?
1: Sure. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day and for this evening that we have to come together to discuss your word. We pray that our hearts are open, that our minds are sharp that we will be able to discern those things that you have written for us we also pray for each man who is on the line and for those who are listening that their families are protected and blessed and we pray for our country and for our leaders and we pray for people around the world we pray for peace and we ask that you will help us to be uh, more involved in those things that will help to make us better people and a better nation these blessings we ask and thanks we return in your son's name amen Amen. Amen. Welcome, Mark. Well, well, this is a real feast
2: for me. I was uh, amazed to get the email with William and Don's name in there. They may not remember this, but I met them both in 2007. I was uh, going through a pretty bad depression because the church that my wife and I had helped start when we were first married had just kind of thrown me out of my ear for suggesting that the book of Revelation was written before AD 70 and that we should actually go back and look at Old Testament passages when we study the New Testament to get the context of what we're trying to learn and and that we should be concerned about reaching out to others in our community with uh, truths from the Bible to a, because they affect current events. Anyway, it didn't go over too well. And I was kind of thrown out on my ear and my friend Sam Dawson from Amarillo said, oh, you need to come down with me to Corpus Christi. So. I go down there and these guys are are part of this lectureship and uh, William gave a talk on the Song of Moses out of Deuteronomy that has still just infuriated me because I'm so mad of all of the classes on the Old Testament I've been through uh, growing up in the churches of Christ. I mean, they never mentioned the Song of Moses, so I I don't know what was wrong with them, but I've been mad uh, Ever since he gave that little talk, and now and Williams also like the most impressive looking speaker. Now Don doesn't look quite as good as William, but but Don, when he gets up there, he like has the whole Bible memorized, and and he talks so fast you just can't hardly take it in. So I was just blown away by both these guys. I'm absolutely honored to be in their presence here and humbled too. And in reality, Don is actually the preparer of the feast we've been having. In the book of Acts, he doesn't really consider this one of his uh, major works, but he offers a CD of some classes that he gave in Ardmore, his hometown, Oklahoma, and I don't know, that's been, what, eight or ten years ago now, isn't it, Don?
3: Oh, my, it's been probably a little longer than that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I've, I've been working on it for a couple of years myself, trying to transcribe the recordings and pieces together, but when we decided we wanted to look at the book of Acts, and... Before I do a new one, I always call Don, and he gives me a recommended reading list. So he did that for the Gospel of John, and then on the book of Acts, he had this CD. So we've been using that as our, not exclusive, but our primary reverence material. So just uh, in way of review, we have been looking at the book of Acts as the restoration of Israel, as the spiritual transformation of Israel from a wasted, dying, physical nation into God's perfect work, the new creation, the, the uh, perfectly transformed bride, which Israel was supposed to be, and now she is. We've been looking at the book of Acts in that way. We've been seeing the systematic fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel throughout the book here. And we're winding our way now through some of these travels of Paul that Don kind of skipped over in his study. We're winding our way down towards the trials of Paul, and Don has some really amazing material. So we are supposed to be picking up here with the riot in Ephesus, but if Don William will allow, I just had some questions here, which I think would be a great benefit for us to kind of interrupt our narrative here and go through if y'all are game for that.
3: Sure. But sure. I'm
2: not giving you much of a choice. Good, good. <laughs> 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 All right we seem to see, and again, I'm I'm mad at all of these Acts teachers that I've listened to since I was a young boy, because I never heard them mention this, but when we look at Acts with a fresh viewpoint, we see this idea of the kingdom of God threaded completely through from the very beginning in Acts 1. Jesus had 40 days where he was appearing in bodily form, and he spent that 40 days teaching the disciples the kingdom of God. And then it keeps coming up all the way through the book, all the way to the very end uh, with Paul. He's been trying to get to Rome for years. He's, he's, he, he's got to get to Rome. He's obsessed with getting to Rome. And when he gets there, he calls all the leaders of the synagogues of Rome, uh, and there were a lot of them. We don't know how many. But he he talks their ear off from dawn until late in the evening about The kingdom of God. And uh, this seems to go off. I don't know what Luke's problem was. He's obsessed with this. Now, what comments would you give to people who are so obsessed with the kingdom of God being Israel today? How, How would that have been relevant or obsessive to these men in the first century that we read about in the book of Acts? Is there any connection there or comment you'd like to make on that?
1: William, you want to go on that? That's all right. Go ahead. Go ahead. You you are the <laughs> ones who, who wrote the uh, commentary, so why don't you take it?
3: Well, Mark is certainly correct. Uh, from the very beginning of Acts until the very last of Acts, the theme is the kingdom of God, and we need to remind ourselves of what Paul said repeatedly throughout the book of Acts, as Luke records it. Paul said he preached nothing but the hope of Israel. Now, here is something that impinges on on the previous segment of the program. And that is the dispensational world. The dispensational world says that Jesus came offering the kingdom. The Jews rejected it in unbelief. Therefore, God withdrew the kingdom, postponed the prophetic countdown, and instead established the church instead. And every leading major dispensationalist for the last several generations, basically, is on record as saying that the church was predicted nowhere in the Old Testament. So what we find happening, for instance, in the book of Acts, uh, is the record of a God who had to say, oops, they rejected my original plan, so i got to go back to plan B, and that's the establishment of the church. And yet, once again, what is so critical to understand is that Paul, as recorded by Luke, said he preached nothing but the hope of Israel found in Moses, the law, and the prophets. Acts 24, 14, 15. Acts twenty six twenty one and following. Paul said, And now, having obtained help from God, I stand testifying both to small and great, saying no other things than what Moses and the prophets said should come to pass, that Christ would be the first to be raised from the dead and to, and to proclaim light and life to the Gentiles. So Paul said, my gospel, my doctrine has one source, and that's the Old Testament. Well, that flies directly in the face of dispensationalism. Remember, as I just noted, they tell us the Old Testament didn't predict anything about Paul's ministry. Paul's ministry is to the Gentiles, tell them about the church. You know, that's just supposed to be foreign. Well, then if Paul says he's preaching nothing but the hope of Israel, then the dispensationalists are wrong. Because Paul said, I preach nothing except what Moses, the law, and the prophets said was going to take place. And Paul's teaching about the church, but he's teaching about the kingdom. And he's teaching it from Moses, the law, and the prophets. So That's so critical to understand. And everywhere we go in the book of Acts, we find themes, we have motifs, we, have, we find terminology that is, in fact, taken directly out of the prophetic books. Mark mentioned this study series that I produced. It's a 52-lesson series entitled Acts on the Restoration of Israel. And it goes through not quite every chapter, not quite every story, but it goes through some of the major stories, major themes, in the book of Acts, demonstrating that what was happening here, what Luke tells us about, was actually foretold in the Old Testament quite specifically, quite clearly, and that for any, for any first century Jew reading what Luke is recording, they would have immediately gone, whoa, wow, wow. And, you know, Mark, you said you were, you were mad at your teachers and professors and what have you from your early days. Look, when I very first began that class on Acts of the Restoration of Israel, I told the congregation that that study had been transformative to me, that I had never read anything like, even closely resembling what I was going to teach them. I had never heard anything like it. Uh, but that I I was going to present to them what was now so very clear to me. And once I began to see, this is what's so amazing, once I began to see the constant echoes of the Old Testament prophecies, the constant citations of the Old Testament prophecies, The prophecies that were, in fact, predicting the restoration of Israel in the last days under the Messiah in the kingdom of David, the only conclusion I could come to was one of two things. Either the New Testament teachers in the book of Acts, Luke, you know, Paul, Timothy, etc., either they were perverting those Old Testament prophecies in a totally inappropriate way, and by the way, there are some scholars who say that's true, or. They, that is, Paul and the New Testament writers, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, were giving the true, the proper interpretation of what those Old Testament prophecies actually meant from the very beginning. And that is obviously the truth of the situation. And I don't want to I don't want to dominate this conversation because William has so much to offer, but when we look at the book of of Acts through the prism of the Old Testament, and you mentioned William speaking on the on the Song of Moses, well, guess what? The Song of Moses is found throughout the Book of Acts, and once we are attuned, as the ancient Jews were, but as we today are seldom, seldom attuned to hearing. You know, Richard Hayes is a marvelous New Testament scholar of our generation. He wrote a book, Echoes of Scripture. And what he says is that if we were Jews living in the first century, we would have known the Torah, or to use a broader term, the Tanakh, the Old Testament. We would have known it so well. That when a New Testament writer just gave us two or three key words, parts of a sentence from an Old Testament prophecy, we would have known immediately what prophecy he was talking about. We would have understood that he was saying that what Isaiah foretold back here in Isaiah 58, for instance, was being fulfilled. And that meant the kingdom that had been promised for the last days was being established. But instead, we come along, and we have this contrived, dispensational view of of things that says the book of Acts is about the establishment of the church and the spread of the gospel of grace, which is not the doctrine of the kingdom of God. It's It's the gospel to the Gentiles. It's not the gospel to the church. And we have to completely and totally ignore all of these citations, all of these allusions, all of these quotations of these Old Testament prophecies in which the New Testament speaker or writer says that what was happening was in fact the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And thus we create a doctrine that is in fact completely and totally contrary to the biblical truth, and yet, it's what millions and millions of people believe today. And that is a horrible, horrible tragedy.
2: Yeah, I agree. Well, I've got, I've got more questions. All right, thank you. Now, we're we're looking at Paul's time in Ephesus. We just finished up uh, his two years there. He had started, of course, in the synagogue and then had moved to the school of Tyrannus. The silversmiths accuse him in the... Uh, Town theater of perverting all of Asia during those two years, even though as far as we know, he never really left the city. These happen to be the churches, uh, all of Asia that that the book of Revelation was addressed to, which of course is a linchpin to this horrible false religion that you just alluded to. So uh, are there any, are there any reasons or hidden uh, links between uh, Paul's time and Asia, and and why the Revelation was sent to that particular part of the Roman world. Any of you all ever thought of
1: that? In, uh, you know, in Revelation, of course, it's addressed to the seven churches uh, that were in Asia. And, of course, these churches are identical to those that are addressed in 1 Peter, who was writing to the Diaspora. And, uh, of course... You know, from that context, he quotes passages from Hosea, wherein God talked about, uh, restoring the kingdom and, and, um, establishing the kingdom in Hosea from passages in chapter one, where he talks about them not being a people, but with, uh, according to chapter two, eighteen and following, they would become the people of God. And so the context, and that's out of the context of, of remarrying Israel as well, who had been cut off, and so, what you have in the book of Acts is the regathering of Israel based on those prophecies in Hosea and um, uh, other passages in the Old Testament, and, and particularly in the book of Amos as well, which is found in Acts chapter 15. So, you know, what we have uh, that ties together Revelation, uh, Peter, and, uh, and the book of Acts are the actual prophecies, as, as Don was saying a moment ago that he said nothing except those things that Moses and the prophets said were coming. The Jews were trying to prove that he was teaching a different gospel other than what the prophets taught, and he said they couldn't prove it, according to Acts uh, 24. Uh, they couldn't prove, you know, 13 through 15. They could not prove what they had accused him of, but he testified to them that the way in which they called the sect, he said, so I preach the word Of the prophets. He was saying to them, uh, He believed all things which were written in the law and in the prophets. And so that was the mystery. Uh, And you're talking, you know, you started in Ephesians 19 and and addressing Ephesus, which I think is, is very appropriate in terms of the discussion, because in the book of Ephesians, what he does is establishes the mystery of God. That's what the mystery of God was it was the bringing of Jew and Gentile into the one body of Christ. And as Don and I were having a conversation on our broadcast, or at least earlier this evening, you know, we were talking about the fact that you know, for the first few years, the gospel was preached to the Jew first, until the time of Cornelius, and then the Gentiles came in. Well, that is exactly what the Scriptures had had spoke about. Jesus made reference to that as he quoted Isaiah from Luke chapter twenty-four when he said, "Thus it behooved Christ to." Uh thus it is written, and thus it behoove Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And it's very interesting that uh they kind of pick up on that at the beginning of Acts with that same connection uh from Luke chapter twenty four, uh with the gospel beginning in Jerusalem. But he's quoting from Isaiah, uh, which is the prophecy that was to be fulfilled in the last days and indicating that this was the time that this restoration of Israel is taking place uh, that you know it's it's uh, taking place but it was a gospel to the Jew and to the Gentile and so the work the church at Ephesus was all about teaching them the mystery of God and he said that in other ages it was not made known as it has now been revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles might be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That is what the unity uh, in Ephesians is all about. When he says, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in chapter 4, that is the unity of which he speaks, of bringing Jew and Gentile together in one body. So this is not um, a postponing of what the prophets had talked about. It's the actual fulfillment of, And Ephesians, you know, Acts 19, where the work is among the Ephesians church, um, is played out and demonstrated in the epistle to the Ephesians, where the focus is all about being one in Christ and bringing them together into the kingdom. And and the very fact that he says in chapter 2 that he's raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenlies, well, the sitting there is the kingdom. It's in the kingdom. And, of course, the kingdom is a temple as well. So again, that ties right back into Acts chapter 15, building again the tabernacle of David, and, uh, Ephesians 2, 19, and following, where, uh, Christ is the, um, chief cornerstone and the, built upon the apostles, Jesus Christ and the apostles, and of course, uh, those being fellow heirs through the Spirit. So there we have that habitation of God spoken of. So it all ties together from the message of Acts, the prophets, Ephesians, and Acts chapter 19, and that ties into the book of Revelation and just shows that that theme is carried throughout until it's fulfilled.
3: I'd like to add a little bit more to that. I agree with everything that William said, but specifically in regard to the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the... um concerning the restoration of Israel. Throughout the book of Isaiah especially, uh, you find it some in Jeremiah, but throughout the book of Isaiah, you find the concept that in the last days when the kingdom of God would be established, God would overcome the gods of the foreign countries. That is to say, they would cast down their idols. Those, The gods of the other countries would be su- subject to them. You know, in in, in Isaiah... Uh, chapters 41 through 40, oh, about 44, 45 especially. Uh, you find the, the contrast, uh, between the gods of the countries surrounding Israel and the true God. And God laid down a challenge there in Isaiah chapter 41 especially. Bring forth your strong reasons. Tell us what shall be so that we may know that you are God. So, uh, it, it presents the challenge between the true God, the God of Israel, and the false gods, the gods of idolatry, and what have you, and the triumph of the God of Israel, and this entire section of Isaiah 41 uh, through, uh, well, really on through the through the end uh, of the entire book, also contains with it a uh, the motif of the Second Exodus, and in this second exodus it is overcoming uh, the enslaving powers and it's overthrowing the false gods and what have you so what we find here in Acts chapter 19 is the overcoming of the makers of the of the uh statues of the of the goddess Diana who is the dominant power the dominant goddess uh, of the grecian world in, in which paul was functioning at that time so while this particular aspect Uh, is one of those, shall we say, almost subtle concepts for those uh, first century Jews who would have been reading uh, and conversant with, first of all, Isaiah and the overthrowing of the false gods. William and I were talking about on our uh, program earlier this evening about Isaiah chapter 65 and how God predicted the new creation. In that new creation... God would destroy the false gods that Israel had established, the false gods who made a claim on Israel. And while Acts chapter 19 is not talking specifically about the false gods who had power over Israel, it's nonetheless in that same vein of thought, and that's the triumph of the one true God. So it's another one of those things in which even though Acts chapter 19 does not quote an Old Testament prophecy, okay, uh, of saying, well, in, in turning the world upside down, I will get to a prophecy on that here momentarily. While it doesn't quote a verse insofar as the defeat of Diana, it most assuredly does contain the echoes of the Old Testament prophecies of the overcoming of the false gods. Jeremiah chapter 46 uh, through 49 Uh, talks about the irony of people worshiping gods that were mere gold, that were mere silver, that were mere wood, that even though when you called on them, they could never give you relief, they could never deliver you, they could never give you blessings, and what have you. So all of these concepts are, are echoed here in Acts chapter 19. Another thing which William was pointing out, and that is the preaching of the gospel here to the Gentiles, Uh, is most assuredly directly echoed in Isaiah 11, Isaiah chapter 65, in which in the prediction of the coming of the kingdom, Isaiah chapter 11, the righteous king who would rule in righteousness and in wisdom, and in the new creation, in both of those passages in Isaiah, again, chapter 11, chapter 65, it specifically says, all the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. You know the knowledge of the Lord will go into all the all of the earth well, in the ancient world, Asia was considered part of that far extent of the world. to the in the mind of the Jews located in uh, Jerusalem and Judea, Asia was way out there, and by the way, Rome was considered to be the quote end of the world by most who lived in the land of Judah. And so here is Asia that is, in the mind of the first century reader, uh, part of that far extended world because it was hundreds upon hundreds of miles away from Judah and Jerusalem, which was, of course, the center of their world. So there are an awful lot of things going on. There are plots, there are subplots, there are themes, there are subthemes that are found here. Even in the overthrow of the goddess of Diana, that once again, if we are not attuned to what the Old Testament prophets foretold in the establishment of the kingdom, that is, the overthrow of the foreign gods and goddesses, then we may miss the point in Acts chapter 19 and simply come to think of it and say, wow, look how successful the gospel was being. Well, the gospel was supposed to be successful Prophetically, that is, from the view of the Old Testament prophets, when the kingdom of God was established, and when when Messiah would sit on his throne over the over the kingdom of David, who was not supposed to be only the king over the land of Israel, but who was to be king over all the nations. Well, here's Acts chapter nineteen: the defeat of the foreign gods, establishing Jesus as the one and the true. Sovereign. This is prophecy being fulfilled.
2: Those were both fabulous uh, comments on where we're at in the book of Acts right now. That will be extremely helpful. All right. i got a quick question. We've been using books uh, that you mentioned in your studies, such as The Mystery of Romans by Mark Nanos, which completely resets our understanding of the context of the synagogue in the Roman world. In the first century, and, and, and we really see ourselves more as the continuation of the kingdom of David rather than a replacement for Israel. So this is, it's hard for us to really take it all in. Are there, are there any newer scholarly works that either of you are acquainted with that would be related in at least that way to the book of Acts that either of you are aware of?
3: There is a book that comes as close to putting my thoughts. In fact, I discovered this book about, oh, I don't remember exactly at what point I discovered it when I was teaching my my class on Acts on the Restoration of Israel. Uh, it's written by a scholar by the name of Ricky Watts, and it is an absolutely marvelous book. It is the second exodus in the book of Acts. Uh, that's not the exact name of it. For those interested in that, I could, I'll get the exact name of the book, but Ricky Watts does a marvelous, marvelous job uh, in showing the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the establishment of the kingdom and the redefinition of Israel. He shows how the New Testament writers, he shows how Luke, he shows how Paul were ardent believers in the Old Testament prophecies of the kingdom of God. But they were followers of Jesus, and they believed, and through Paul's ministry, they taught that Israel had been redefined. For instance, I'll give you an example of this in Acts chapter 3. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching in the temple. They have healed the man who has been lame all of his life. The people have been astounded. Peter calls on them to repent and to be converted, so that times of refreshing, which is a period of respite before judgment, could come from the presence of the Lord, and the Lord, and so that the Lord would send Jesus, uh, who must remain in heaven, he said, until the restoration of all things. Now he then quotes Deuteronomy chapter 18, in which he says. Another prophet shall arise, like unto me, Moses said, to him you shall give heed. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not heed the words of that prophet, he shall be utterly cut off, the Greek of the text is very emphatic, out from among the people. Now this language is challenging. This language is really, really powerful. Israel referred to herself as the people. Here, Peter defines the true people of God. He defines the true followers of Moses. He defines the true obedient children of God as those who follow Jesus and he says if you did not follow jesus notice again the specific form of the language shall be utterly cut off out from among the people in other words you might be you might be considered the people okay which is what israel considered themselves but the refusal To follow Jesus, the refusal to be the disciple of Jesus meant that you would be cut off out from the true people, the true people being the followers of Jesus, and therefore you would no longer be the people. Here is a radical redefinition of who Israel really was. And this, by the way, is not replacement theology. Far from it. This is saying what Moses predicted has come true. This is saying the true Israel are the followers of Jesus. Again, this is not replacement. This is saying, really in effect, what the Old Testament taught over and over and over again. And that is, only a righteous remnant, those who followed God by faith, like Abraham before Israel existed. Only those who obeyed Yahweh through faith, by faith, were the real Israel. You know, you could be a Gentile. Follow the Lord of Israel by faith, you're considered one of the chosen people, over and over in the Old Testament. Yahweh said, if a man who was a foreigner, who was not of the seed of Abraham, not of the seed of Israel, desired to be a follower of Yahweh, all he had to do was to be circumcised and, and guess what, obey Torah, and he was to be considered, quote, as a native-born son, unquote. That's powerful stuff. That says... That says a foreigner who is not even of the blood lineage of Abraham, not of Jacob, not of Isaac, as long as he wanted to follow, love and serve the God of Israel, he was ever bit as much an Israelite as anyone else, as those who were born of the blood of Abraham. Like I said, that's really, really powerful stuff. Do you mind giving that citation again, please? Well, there are several uh, citations. Exodus chapter 14 is one of them. Uh, there's a citation, I believe it's in, I'd have to look it up again in Numbers 19. Uh, in a Messianic prophecy, by the way, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 47, 12 to 13, uh, the Lord spoke of this Messianic temple, the establishment of the temple. And he talks about the allotment of the inheritance to the twelve tribes. So this is the restoration of Israel in the Messianic kingdom. And it says, and it shall be that those who are not of the tribes of Israel, who join themselves to the God of Israel, shall receive equal portion with the children of Israel. So again, this this is incredible stuff showing us that inheritance was never by race, it was always by grace. That all you had to do to be considered a child of Abraham, so to speak, was to be a follower of Yahweh by faith, just like Abraham was. That's why Paul concludes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6, as he says, So then we conclude that only those who are of faith, are the children of Abraham. It doesn't matter whether you were Jew, Gentile. It did not matter if you were male or female. It didn't matter if you were Roman or Greek or Scythian or whoever you might be. If you were a person of faith, you're children of Abraham. Thus, you are part of the true, the people. That is Peter's point in Acts chapter 3, because he says that God had sent Jesus of the lineage of Abraham to bless all of those who believe by taking away their sin.
1: I think it's also important to even add to that uh, the fact that Abraham, when God blessed him and declared him righteous, was uncircumcised and uh, would be considered as a Gentile. As opposed to being a Jew, and the premise that was made to him regarding uh, God blessing all nations was channeled through his seed. And in the same chapter that you are uh, you were just uh, quoting from in Galatians three, verse sixteen says, "He says, "Not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ." And so, the promise that God made through which Abraham and all families would be blessed was not through the many, was not through the nation. and romans nine six through eight points out that you know the natural seed were not the seed to begin with, but that it would come through Christ. And of course, Christ could not inherit in the flesh, which is one of the reasons he died because the promise could not be fulfilled in the realm of the flesh. And so he died and was born again. As Acts 13 says, Today you are my son, this day have I begotten you, and therefore he becomes the firstborn from the dead. He was the seed of David according to the flesh, but he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit. And it is the realm of the Spirit wherein the promise was to be fulfilled. And so in Galatians, as Don was saying, he says, You are all sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And again, there is neither Jew nor Greek, bond nor free, male nor female, But you are all one, and that reflects back to the context. The context of the one, oneness in that chapter was the seed. You are all one seed in Christ. That's the one seed, but it it is through Christ who has been raised from the dead. That's why Paul starts the letter in Galatians. He starts it off with that. Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. And... Then he says, if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, still singular, and heirs according to the promise. And if we uh, I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead, William. I thought you were finished. Well, uh, I can stop there. Go right ahead. Well,
3: I just wanted to make a little bit of a technical point from the Hebrew language of of the Old Testament, we are constantly told, and this this goes back to what William was emphasizing there about this, one seed, one seed, and and you and your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Well, Paul makes it a point of saying that's seed singular. Well, fascinatingly enough, in every single occurrence uh, in the Old Testament that speaks of Abraham's seed and the nations being blessed through the seed, the word seed is always, always in the singular. Now I've consulted men who know the Hebrew. I, I don't know one Hebrew scratch from from another, so I want to make that that abundantly clear. But I have consulted with men who who know the Hebrew, who read the Hebrew, and understand the Hebrew, and who have done this uh, concordance study for me, who have done the uh, you know that grammatical study for me, and they confirmed that in every instance, every single instance, in the Old Testament that speak of the nations being blessed through the seed of Abraham, the word seed is in the singular. Now, there are some instances in, in which the word descendants might be added, okay? But that, and that lets us know that we're talking about a plural. But in the context of what we're talking about here, it's always in the singular. Now, that's a very, very powerful thing, because when people start saying, oh, well, it's the Jewish nation that was going to bless the world, guess what? The grammar and the linguistics say that it would be through the singular seed of Abraham that the world would be blessed. That is a critical point. Well,
2: it is. So that that's like the one body of Christ. Yes, that we are joined to um, as opposed to each of us going over and staking out uh, a claim for an acre over in uh <laughs> Palestine today or something. Yeah, okay. Indeed. Well, okay. I knew, I knew it would be scary turning the mic over to these guys because they know so much. And we, we've got, unfortunately then I've got four more questions that I'm not going to have time to get to here. Uh, but <laughs> But this has just been phenomenal uh, to uh, expand what we'll be seeing here as we finish up these travels of Paul. And I had hoped to ask Don to give a little intro into the trials of Paul, but that would probably take another hour. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Don's work on that is just, it's 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 scary because it, it tackles uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition and the Protestant creeds relating to the nature of the resurrection. And so... I will try to do it justice when I present it, but be prepared to be shocked, uh, maybe even offended. You might even get mad at me. I don't know. But uh, I, I think it's just incredible material, and it really changes the nature of of who we are and the fact that all has been fulfilled in Christ rather than having to wait for some future event to occur or to be worried about which way your gravestone faces in the cemetery or something like that. Is. Anyway, <laughs> I, that's just a quick preview and we've got a few more classes before we get there. Anyone else, I've, I've kind of hogged the question. Does anyone else have any final things they'd like to ask uh, William and Don before we close for the evening?
0: Well, they're, well, all, they're always welcome back. So, you know, we'll oh, yes. have to terminate this uh, if they're <laughs> willing to come back. Uh, we're always looking for different viewpoints and thoughts, and we've uh, used that uh, Galatian
3: verse there three uh, the, many times, so i really appreciate uh, Williams reinforcing of what we we're trying to to say here that we hold these truths. Well, we appreciate the opportunity to be with you I uh, appreciate always. Uh, known Mark for a few years now and uh, it's always good to visit with him and uh, and to get his thoughts on, on some things and appreciate you gentlemen having us on we really do
0: it's our pleasure thank you very much thanks again thanks for listening if you like this program please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. and be sure to visit our website whtt.org for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.